When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify. The global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. What is the most important part of making an audio drama? That's not a rhetorical question. Think about it. All the parts, all the steps, What's the one thing you can't afford to take out? Here, I'll answer it for you. Yeah, so sound is pretty important. Can't really have this medium without it. And by extension, after showrunner, the most important role on your production team is always going to be your sound designer. If you're budgeting out who gets paid, and you really should, it's also going to be the most expensive. Finally, your sound designer is going to be the biggest keystone in determining the tone and feel of your show. So, is taking on that role yourself the best idea? In this episode, we'll discuss both answers to that question, the various roles that go into shaping the sound of a show, and why the ticket to getting people to listen to your show is actually your sound designer. Welcome back to Mini Marconi's, how to be a fiction podcaster while still being a kid. Should I teach myself sound design as a first-time creator? Regardless of if you answer yes or no, you're likely going to have to learn a little bit. The title of sound designer actually encompasses a number of roles in the creation of a show's sound. Take selection and making the dialogue edit, clean up and repair of voice actor lines, actual sound design, and mixing and mastering. As the showrunner and head writer, you will likely take on the job of the dialogue edit and take selector no matter what. Choosing which takes of a line to use and laying out the timing and pace of the dialogue in the scene are incredibly important parts of the process that usually reflect how the episode is being directed. Showrunner and director tend to go hand in hand, so this will probably fall to you. Once this is done, there will usually need to be some work done on the voice actor's recordings to make them sound their best. This is done utilizing a variety of repair plugins, lots of time, and ear training. If you don't have any of those and aren't prepared to put in a lot of time and effort to gain them, it's best to leave this step to a sound designer who's already prepared. Next, it's time to get into the meat of the process, sound design. This involves soundscaping, adding effects and blocking to the actor's performances, and creating and sourcing the sound effects needed to convey what's happening in the scene. This process can be as simple as two characters sitting at a desk talking, to a high-octane magic fight during a thunderstorm. It usually takes the longest and involves the most back and forth between sound designer and director. Finally, there's mastering and mixing. Do all of the characters sound present in the scene and not too loud or quiet? How about all the sound effects? Is the final mix of the audio about 15 to 17 luffs, which is the loudness standard for most podcast players? 
do you know how to do that last thing without creating a huge, headache-inducing mess? Don't worry, I'll explain how later on. It all boils down to that aforementioned question. Do I have the time, resources, and genuine interest to teach myself sound design? If the answer is no, here's what you need to know. First things first, when it comes to sound design, you get what you pay for. When you hire a sound designer, you aren't just hiring a person. You're paying for a library of sound effects, plugins, and the knowledge of how to use them effectively, a highly trained ear, and hours and hours of trial and error to make your project sound just right. That costs money, more than any other role in production. Budget accordingly, and don't be surprised if someone who knows what they're doing quotes you more than you expect. Communication is also incredibly important. You're asking someone to interpret a set of textual instructions to try and recreate an audio product you have in your head. By giving yourself a basic understanding of the process, you'll be able to explain that you want this explosion to be panned to the left, or that the space size for the reverb they're using is too big. The better you get at speaking the language of sound design, the closer they'll be able to work with you to bring your vision to life. As for the writing you're trying to communicate, be prepared for some notes. There's no harm in including visual instructions in your scripts. It helps the actors understand the scene and their characters better, gives the sound designer information they can translate into tangible audio, and provides some Easter eggs for the fans who read them. However, there are some things you either need to add for clarity's sake or flat out don't need when an audio-only format comes into play. For example, if a character's shirt being red is important to the plot, you're going to need to find a way for that detail to naturally come up in narration or conversation. And speaking of narration, if a moment or piece of information can be conveyed equally as well with a sequence of sound design, you need to either justify that narration another way or cut it entirely. Your audience is smarter and has better imaginations than you think. Now, if the answer to that big question is yes, congratulations! You have a very long, very difficult, very exciting road ahead of you. But luckily, you're not alone. Some really talented sound designers out there are self-taught, and they've got plenty of wisdom to share. If it's a DAW you're trying to decide on, there's no shortage of options. I personally use Adobe Audition since I had a free Creative Cloud subscription in high school, but plenty of other sound designers start out in a free or simple program like Audacity or GarageBand, then get their feet wet in more complex DAWs like Pro Tools, Hindenburg, or Reaper. I promised my friend and fellow sound designer Brad Colebrook that they could do a spiel for Reaper on this show, so here's that. Kakos Incorporated has not paid for the following testimonial. The rapid environment for audio production, engineering, and recording, more popularly known as Reaper, is a budget-friendly, high-capacity, non-destructive digital audio workstation. It is almost infinitely customizable, with thousands of available themes, and a steadily growing number of custom actions which can be mapped to any keyboard shortcut you desire. Its interface is sleek and efficient, allowing you to place mono, stereo, surround sound, and MIDI files all on the same track without issue. The unique feature known as ripple editing allows you to move all media items located after the one you click, ideal for adding or removing scenes from your audio drama. Reaper's Media Explorer is fast and reliable, creating databases of your sound effects that will return results almost instantaneously, meaning you don't have to wait minutes to find that file you know you have. 
Reaper rarely crashes and can be run off a flash drive, unlike certain clunky DAWs requiring 15 to 70 gigabytes of hard drive space. It utilizes mouse modifiers rather than the editing modes in other popular DAWs, streamlining your editing process and eliminating extra clips. Reaper users are an active community, sharing tips, workflows, and custom scripts in addition to a wealth of easy to understand tutorials. Effects are simple drag and drop rather than a complicated system of summons, and Reaper ships with a whole lot of built-in effects. With support for Sonic and easily implemented region and numbers, all the numbers are shoppers. Reaper's rapidly coming into standard audio language. Try it for free, and then buy it for the low one-time payment of $60 at Reaper.fm. Anyway, now for some real advice. Eli Hamada McElveen is the co-founder of the Fable and Folly Network, and a self-taught sound designer who's been working in the medium all his life. He explained what sparked his interest in sound design and what the learning curve turned out to be. Hi there, uh, it's Eli McElveen. I am a sound designer and writer and uh, creator of shows for Fable and Folly. Um, I do the sound design on all the Fable and Folly originals, and uh, I'm also lead sound designer on Unwell. And uh, I've done some other work, including the Emilio project. Cool. And you're a self-taught sound designer, right? Yeah, I started, I guess, in high school, if you if you want to go back to that, of a bunch of friends and I were just improvising a terrible attempt at uh, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, basically, and I was making sound with whatever I had on hand. High school jam sessions, I was uh, didn't have any instruments, so I was like playing sound effects records backwards and banging on any other objects I could find, like souvenir musical instruments. And uh, went into university radio, did some some work producing a uh, weekly comedy series that ended up being more <laughs> abstract sound design because we just basically ran out of um, recorded comedy. So we just made sound art in its place. So what made you realize that sound design was something that you wanted to put time and effort into learning, even if you didn't necessarily have the conventional resources to do so? That's a good question. I, I think I had always just been a fan of all kinds of audio entertainment. Like I'd grown up with sketch comedy on the radio and CBC radio up here uh, ha still produced radio drama for many years. Uh, they, I think they, they kept producing up until like 15, 20 years ago. Like I mentioned Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. That was sort of a turning point hearing that when they rebroadcasted on CBC. And it was conceived, I guess, back in the 70s as this showcase for their um, the Radiophonic Workshop to do wild sound design for. And I, I think that just sort of seeped into my brain and got me excited to create with sound. Getting into radio was sort of a natural thing after that. So a lot of our listeners who are on the younger side sort of got bit by the sound design bug running tech for high school theater productions or college theater productions. And I know you have a lot of experience in live sound design for theater as well. What sort of key bits of training did you take from that version of the medium and put into sound designing for audio drama? I didn't do sound design in high school, but I did pyrotechnics for the school play one year. It was like a giant set piece at the end where uh, like sparks are flying and things are blowing up, but there was no sound to accompany it. And it just sort of, it really fell flat. And I remember thinking this could have been amazing. I, I'd never really put those two things together at that point. Later on, yeah, I got into doing 
sound design for a number of uh, community productions here here in Toronto. I got into it for the weird sounds, and and I wasn't back then. I wasn't as interested in sort of the the everyday sounds, but the more I did it, the more I got into sort of supporting the actors' performances uh, and doing really like subtle things with foley and little little clothing moves and footsteps and things to kind of cement their their physicality. Like I've likened it elsewhere to being like an animator. Uh, you're providing their physical expression. If they hesitate asking a question, maybe they squirm for a second in their chair and there's a tiny creak. Building that to underline everything that they're doing, that that became really fun for me. It sort of makes you like a second director or even a second actor in all the scenes. Yeah, you're you're filling a lot of roles, like the equivalent of cinematographer and to an extent, like even choosing wardrobe. Yeah. So when it comes to, you know, being self-taught in pretty much anything, there's a lot of trial and error. And there's always going to be those big aha moments where you realize that you were missing a key piece of information to your skill set or doing something wrong the entire time. What would you consider one of your biggest aha moments in that regard in your sort of self-taught journey? I'm sure there's plenty of moments like that because... Compression tends to be a big bugbear for a lot of us. Yeah, like, (laughs) yeah, hearing over-compressed stuff from, from the early days... Yeah, you hear that stuff loud and clear eventually, but it's not always obvious. Um, yeah, and and just listening to other examples and like these days, um, watching YouTube tutorials about how to use such and such a plugin is <laughs> been really helpful. And ear training plays a lot into it as well. Sort of the natural ear training you get just by doing this for a while, but also you know seeking out opportunities to hone that particular skill. Listening to shows that you really like and love the sound design on, and then also paying attention to ones where you think it's falling flat, or there's there's something about it bugging you, like there's really harsh S's uh, in the, the actors, and realizing, oh, they could have taken that out with this tool. Learning first start what those frequency ranges are, what is one kilohertz, that's so just a, a number until you start <laughs> putting that together. So you mentioned some of the aspects of sound design that were trickier for you to learn starting out, but I want to know what sort of corner of the sound design process or aspect of the step-by-step that you go through, do you still find either the most difficult or that you're still learning the most about today? Some of it is Foley. Like real Foley artists in, on film and TV projects are in there basically mirroring exactly what the, the actors are doing. And that is like deep, deep art. Of course, I'd, I'm not always in a position where I have time to record any Foley at all. So it's making it up with whatever is on my hard drive and whatever I can scrounge from a, a library real quick. So getting some of those subtleties is still kind of a pain in the ass sometimes. And some sometimes there's there's that um, I <laughs> I borrow a Terry Pratchett line uh, things that is it things that look like things things that try to look like things often do look more like things than things and that goes for sound design because sometimes you know I I'm trying to think of a um, 
object offhand. Sometimes it just doesn't make a very good sound. You get it in front of the microphone and... A box of chalk? Yeah, and it sounds like a thump. And it could be anything. And you're like, it needs that little something to, to make it into the... Oh, what's the word? It's sort of symbolic representation for the listener to, to give them exactly the, the sound they they think they they need. What is one piece of advice that you would give to young people, you know, under 21, who are looking to dip their toe or even their entire leg into sound design? Don't sweat it, maybe. Uh, like, uh, especially things like, don't get sucked into the trap of thinking you have to have all this expensive software and gear, maybe a, a reverb plugin and possibly a small MIDI keyboard if you want to get into um, doing music as well or using sampled instruments. Try out all the, the different tools out there uh, that you can get your hands on for your budget and yeah, play around. Be the be the sort of person that walks into a thrift store and, you know, taps on all the different glassware to see what kind of noises it makes and yeah, start getting curious about the way different materials sound or the way people talk and <laughs> uh, I don't know, practice le- listening to the same damn thing over and over. <laughs> the keyword there is listening listening to your work, listening to your vision for the show as a producer, and sometimes listening to a partner. Sharing the load of sound designer and, more often than not, showrunner as well, can take a lot of the initial pressure off, as well as give you someone to hold you accountable and inspire you to take risks and learn new skills. Alexander Danner and Jeff Van Driesen are the producer-sound designer team behind Greater Boston, an audio drama that started in 2016 and has gone on to win multiple awards and gain praise from some of the biggest names in the industry. We chatted about imposter syndrome, realizing when you're ready to go pro, and the perks of having someone to lean on. I am Alexander Danner. I am co-creator of Greater Boston. I am the sound designer on What's the Frequency? And I'm on the sound design team of Unwell, uh, a Midwestern Gothic mystery. And I'm Jeff Andreessen. I'm the other co-creator of Greater Boston. Beyond that, I haven't done a ton else. I edited and sound designed season two of Fan Wars, and I've written for a few shows, mostly one-off episodes, including upcoming episodes for Forgive Me and a couple other things. So you guys are both self-taught sound designers for the most part, right? Completely, mm-hmm. yes. Completely. How did you guys start working together as a sound design team? We literally sat next to each other and brought up GarageBand and dumped the files in and just figured it out. Um, that's it. <laughs> like we we'd been working together as writers for for a lot longer, and this started as a writing project. And then we learned sound design because we had to. It yep. Was, same it was here. Same idea here. to make a podcast, and so we we kept saying we'll worry about that later. And then it, the the thing was that. It reminded us both, and I can get into more of this later, it reminded us both of writing because so much of it is about choices um, and what choices feel appropriate in the moment or for what you're doing. And a lot of it was kind of instinctive. It, a lot of it was just sort of making the whatever you're working on, making choices that sort of best help the piece overall. And so that that actually wasn't too hard to sort of figure out. Other things took took some time to figure out, but that aspect was came to us pretty naturally, I think. Now, you guys have both um, mentioned writing and directing because you are both also a writing team. 
And I know that a lot of people who get into sound designing alongside making their first podcast have to kind of find that balance between talking to yourself as a writer, talking to yourself as a sound designer, ensuring that you write and put your process together in a way that will make sense when you have to go and create this world later. How do you guys incorporate all of the aspects of production that you cover into your process so that your head does not explode? <laughs> not as well as we should. Yeah, our heads are exploding <laughs> on the daily at this point. I mean, we have our cast is, uh, we have about 75 speaking parts, which here's, here's some advice. Don't do that. <laughs> we, no, started, yeah. we, we started small relatively cast. small, though large for first season with like, I think 12 to 15 speaking parts. And it's just grown since then. And it's, Head, heads heads are popping all the time. One thing that helped early on to help us find our footing was that it was relatively simple. We didn't we didn't know how many of our friends and most most of our original cast are just friends and family members. We didn't know how many of them were going to commit or how many of them would want to be involved. And so the first season is mostly monologues and a lot of it is narration from Alexander because we knew that we could depend on him. And what we didn't know is how much dialogue we could have. We we didn't know if we, we were able to record dialogue. We didn't feel comfortable enough recording a lot of dialogue. Um, so we started really simply. And that's why in season one, you know, a lot, and this is something I, I kind of, we both kind of regret, I think. A lot of the, the pieces are letters, um, <laughs> which which is, I wouldn't say dramatically inert, but it presents a challenge as a sound designer. How do you make a letter that someone is reading or writing come to life? Um, and the, the other thing I'd say on top of that is the best thing to do when you have a team is to pass off the duties to somebody else. So if you're the writer, maybe ask the designer to design it because they're going to approach it from a very different creative perspective than you would. And they'll bring fresh and different ideas to it than you necessarily would, which which is just nice because then it's a true collaboration in a way that it wouldn't have been otherwise. There's plenty of stuff that we write and design, but it's always a nice surprise when one of us does the opposite and we it's a, like just a nice piece of discovery. It's, it's almost as if you're seeing an adaptation of your own work in a way. So you both sound design for Greater Boston, but you also work on other projects where you are not also a writer and director. You're just the sound designer. When did you guys realize that sound design was something that you really enjoyed and wanted to put time and effort into learning and improving that, even if you didn't have the traditional resources and background being self-taught to do so? I, I think I, I mean, I knew I enjoyed it. It took me a while to decide that it was something I had any um, facility with. <laughs> yeah, I, well, it's not as if I started doing it and was like, I'm really good at this. I just, I just thoroughly enjoyed it from, from the onset. I think just being able to, I, well, the way I think about it is cheat my way through it. <laughs> because again, when we were using GarageBand, like I, the, the thing about GarageBand is it's pretty limited in what you can do, but I was working that sucker to death. Like I, I was finding ways to do stuff that I impressed myself with. I'll say, I think even most of the way through season two, as much as I, I genuinely did enjoy doing the sound design, I still had in my head that if we ever had actual money to put behind the show, that, well, of course, we're going to hire someone who actually knows what they're doing, and I'm not going to do the sound design anymore. And it wasn't really until James Oliva asked me to sound design What's the Frequency 
And I went into that and he had expectations for what that show was going to sound like that I told him, look, I have no idea how to do any of the things you're asking for. Um, and he just told me, well, you're going to learn. So speaking of all that work and, and training that you had to do, part of being a self-taught sound designer involves a lot of trial and error and figuring out that you were doing this thing wrong the whole time or you were missing this part of the process the whole time. And there are a lot of eureka moments. So what would you guys say was one of your biggest light bulb aha moments that you had that completely changed the way that you do sound design or a part of the process? One of the big ones for me, and I do think it's worth talking about workflow too, because Jeff and I only recently discovered just how utterly different our workflows are. This is a, a, a ridiculously little thing, but for creating a rotation in sound, so working in stereo, and I want a feeling of, of something revolving around the listener. And I used to do that with automation in the envelope, sitting there inserting point by point each rotation of the thing. And so if I wanted to rotate 20 times, that took like 60 points that I had to put in one by one. And then I discovered that Reaper has a plugin called Ping Pong Pan, and it just does that. You turn it on and it does it and you're done. Going out and exploring the options that are available to you. I know we talk about like not overloading yourself with tons of, of plugins and tools and stuff that you don't know how to use. But there's also an element of curiosity that needs to be had. And go and see what processes that you've been doing that take forever have actually just been made incredibly easier and are available for $7.99. Mm -hmm. Or sometimes they're already in the DAW. This was like it was just a thing that came with the DAW. It was there. I just needed to know to look for it. Sometimes I will go and like watch basic YouTube tutorials for Adobe Audition just to see if they go over anything that I missed or that I never knew existed. And it's such an eye opener because it's like, oh my God, that thing was there the entire time. I teach at Emerson College and one of my perks is I should be able to, you know, get tuition remission and audit some classes. And I've never used that perk despite you know, working there for 13 years now. But I'm, I'm finally doing it. I'm trying to sign up for an introduction to sound design class <laughs> because I know there's so much basic stuff that I never picked up on. And, you know, I, I skipped all the fundamentals. I skipped all the, the theory and the science behind it. I mean, even basic stuff like I fully don't get EQ and compression and that's like the first thing you do. And so for as much as, as I do and, and, you know, I am proud of the work I'm doing, I need a basic course. I, I, I still really do. So speaking of that, I know something, and you touched on this before, that a lot of, you know, self-taught sound designers have to deal with is imposter syndrome. You go into a room and there are all these people who have been doing it for years and years, and some of them have professional training. I see the look on your face. And they're using all of these crazy terms. And you just feel completely overwhelmed and like you don't even belong here. How do you deal with that? Um, it's a matter of knowing when to pretend you know stuff and when not to pretend you know stuff. In in a live situation, just own that you don't know stuff. <laughs> you know, don't don't try to fake it. Just you know, acknowledge that you know we all have limits, we all have gaps, and that's okay. And and use that as an opportunity to find out what they're talking about. Yeah, big time. 
Um, I also I have major imposter syndrome about all sorts of things. Um, but what makes me feel better about it is what one I think that a hundred percent makes sense, like complete honesty and just being like, yeah, I don't know what that is, uh, but I'll figure it out. Or you know, hey, maybe you can help me figure it out. And I think most times people are willing to sort of teach you what they're talking about if you don't know, uh, unless unless they're a jerk, in which case you probably don't want to be working with them anyway. But the what what comforts me is that you know. I, not to touch on some of the discourse that's happening on the internet today, but like there's some big podcasts with budgets behind them that I feel like could be designed better, that, that have professional sound designers that I don't think they're bad design necessarily, but I don't, I don't get the level of technique or, or care or thought out of some of them than I do some indie podcasts that are designed by people that aren't professional. So I think that there's something to be said about bringing your own kind of passion for what you're doing to the project. And that goes a long way. And it might not be quote unquote correct, but it, it might end up being in some ways better suited for the show that you're trying to make. There's even movies and TV shows that I've noticed with not great sound design. And so all I'm, all I'm saying is that's not to say like hire me. I know what I'm doing because that's not true. But I'm just saying that like there are people who are actual professionals at this that, you know, aren't doing maybe the best job that they that they could. It's amazing some of the things you start to notice that you would never have noticed. I was watching something, I wish I could remember what, and they opened a drawer. And the sound effect was very clearly of someone closing a drawer. <laughs> but it was clear because I'm paying so much more attention to the sound now than I would have. I would never have noticed that. <laughs> yeah, ever since we started doing this, we pay attention to the sound all the time now. It's, it's incredible. Building on something that, that Jeff was saying a moment ago, I, I think one of the things that that I see in, especially in the larger budget uh, productions, is I feel like there's this binary of sound design where everything is either absolute full production, cinematic, binaural, full immersion, or it's introductory, the bare minimum... <laughs> And there's nothing in between. But I mean, I love the passion that all of us have about this. One thing that I <laughs> usually tell myself. <laughs> no, one yeah. thing that I tell myself to like put myself at ease whenever I'm asking questions in groups of sound designers is that even if there are maybe one or two assholes there, we love to talk about our job. Like we love talking about sound design and all the stuff that we put into it and all the care and effort that, you know, we put into creating these soundscapes, especially in indie, because at the end of the day, if you're not here for the love of the job, uh, you're not going to stay for very long. So if you ask questions in these circles, you're going to get a lot of information and it's going to be very enthusiastically given. You are opening the floodgates. Oh, yeah, no. We and we feel very strongly, and we always have about supporting others. And you know, I don't want to say the community because you know, we've been we've been burned about using that word before. But just helping other folks, especially folks that are just starting out and and just kind of feeling their way through, because we were we were there not that long ago. And similarly, a lot of people helped us um, along the way. So speaking of community, what is one big piece of advice that you would want to give? for getting started as a self-taught sound designer. I literally just gave advice to someone on Twitter today, and I'm going to say the same thing. I, I told them to take their time. Like, don't rush, um, because especially for the first season, because you, you don't have any expectations for your first season. You have no audience yet. 
And so there's a huge feeling of we got to get it out. We got to get it out. We want to put it out there because you're excited because you're making something and you're exciting about what you're making. And that's a great feeling. But at the same time, you have to combat that a little bit and say, is it ready though? Am I, am I happy with it? Could I do more work? Could I learn more first? Uh, and, and it's hard to know exactly when you're ready. Um, but especially in the writing and designing phases, there's no rush. Like you, you take your time and be happy with it. And then once you're happy with it, work hard on it. Just work your heart out within reason, you know, don't make yourself ill. So take your time and put in the work, but, but also, you know, do it for the right reasons. Do it for fun. Do it, do it because you love it. And I'm sure that everybody is, um, because you, like you said, you wouldn't be doing it otherwise. Like there's, there's really no reason to do it beyond that. I think one of the big things is when you start using any DAW, there's so much in it that it can do that you don't need to know. Don't worry that you don't know it because most of it is stuff you're never going to use ever. And the stuff that you are going to use, learn it as you need it. Don't feel like you need to learn the whole thing all at once. Yeah. I mean, none of this is usually very hard to figure out. I mean, it's very much a Google click away or a conversation away, um, which is nice. Like, So the other, the other side of that coin is don't worry about it until you need it, but also don't suppress the need to sort of challenge yourself either. Like when that moment comes, you got it. You'll figure it out. Everybody has at some point, like you can do it too. There are resources there to help you figure it out. You know, pursuant to what we were saying earlier, if there's something you're trying to figure out how to do and you think we might know how to do it, reach out. Well, that'll never be a problem. Yeah, don't be shy. We, we don't have all the answers, but we'd ha be happy to offer what we have or point you in the right direction. That willingness to share resources, tips, and experience is one of my favorite things about the sound designer community inside the fiction podcasting. And it's why I'm making this show. So with that being said, I'm going to put myself on blast and share the three biggest mistakes I made as a first-time sound designer. Number one, going overboard on the voice modulation. For characters like robots, demons, and crazy powerful wizards, voice effects like modulation, heavy reverb, and distortion can add to their presence and set them apart. Just make sure you don't make them unintelligible. Here's a trick. Have someone who's never seen the script listen to the character's lines. If they can repeat back correctly what's being said, you're in the clear. Number two, LUFS and compression. It's a delicate surgery. What are LUFS? LUFS stands for Loudness Unit Full Scale, and it's how audio engineers measure the perceived overall volume of a piece of audio. Basically, LUFS tells you how loud your recording is going to sound to someone's ears. Some DAWs have the ability to put one or even multiple pieces of audio through a processor that batch sets their loudness to a specific setting. But be careful. Using the wrong version of this setting can overcompress your audio and make it sound pitchy and overproduced. A good rule of thumb is to make sure there's variation in the peaks of the waveforms. If it's a flat top all the way through, you've got compression issues. Number three, clarity trumps realism every time. Your sequence of seven people running away from an explosion may sound really accurate to real life, but remember that all of this is happening close up, intimately, right in someone's ears. All of that detail is going to blend together to sound muddy and packed. If you can clearly convey the idea of group of people running away from an explosion with only three sets of footsteps, some artificially generated booms, and some shattering glass, you're a lot less likely to overwhelm your listener. So why does all of this matter when it comes to reaching an audience? To put it simply, supply and demand are not in the favor of rough edges. 
there are more and more shows out there for audiences to listen to, which means that listeners are being more and more discerning. It's just a fact of too much content, not enough listeners in the entertainment industry. Your best defense against this is to simply make a good sounding show. Part of that is practice. If you're looking to get into sound design, here's an exercise you can do to help you find your footing. Pick a digital audio workspace, aka a DAW, that looks to be within your budget and find a tutorial video series, probably on YouTube. Watch the whole thing. Don't put it on in the background. Don't go on your phone while you listen. Watch it. Take notes like this is a class with an exam at the end. If you already have the DAW, follow along in another window. Get started with that, and I'll see you next week. If you like what you heard, sound off. Drop me a line at minimarconis.com or at newtshot, that's N-E-W-T-S-C-H-O-T-T, on Twitter. You can also leave us a rating and review on iTunes, Podchaser, or Spotify. Thanks for listening. The Fable and Folly Network, where fiction producers flourish.